Hi, everyone, and welcome to the From the Hack podcast for week 18 of the 2018-2019 curling season. This will be our last podcast of 2018, and we are joined by first-time guest Ross Patterson, fresh off his team's big win at the Boost National. Lisa Weagle of Team Holman also joins us this week, as well as Devin Haru of CBC Sports, who joined me for an interesting discussion on some of the big topics from the first half of the curling season. All that and more this week, but first, Canadian musician and non-curler extraordinaire Jimmy Reed plays us into the podcast. So before we get started, if you've ever wondered how they get those nice graphics into the ice at Grand Slams at the World Championships and at Nationals in Canada and the U.S., well, the answer is provided by Jedi's, whose in-ice graphics from easy and textile logos to the world-famous Jedi's Full House product are great ways for clubs to enhance the appearance of their ice and to generate much-needed additional sponsorship revenues. Easy and textile logos are the industry standard for high-quality logos and are a snap to install. Meanwhile, Jedi's customizable full houses are a relatively new way for clubs to grow sponsorship revenues by offering maximum brand recognition to those sponsors. No one can match Jedi's design services, quick turnaround times, and product quality, which is why Jedi's products are valued by major organizations such as Curling Canada, the World Curling Federation, USA Curling, and Sportsnet, who trust Jedi's to provide the products they require for their high-profile events. Jedi's. They bring ice to life. Arnold Ashton's passion for curling, along with his natural propensity to explore new ways to better the game, led him to a whole new world of product design. As a result, all Ashton Curling Supplies products are designed with the curler in mind. Ashton's patented ultralight RDS technology makes it possible to change and customize their slider with any combination of sliding discs. With equal resistance on all sides, the circular design that guarantees a straight slide. These circles have also been designed larger and with stabilizing bars from the outer unit sole to produce the most stable straight sliding shoe the world has ever seen. Go to www.asham.com for brooms, apparel, and revolutionary designed footwear. And if you're considering buying new curling shoes, you must consider the rotator sole. It's the sole of the future. From the Hacks recap of week 18 of the 2018-2019 curling season is powered by The Curling Zone, your premier source for curling results from around the world. Visit us at www.curlingzone.com. The big event on the curling schedule last uh, weekend was the fourth Grand Slam event of the season, the Boost National in Conception Bay, South Newfoundland. Team Gushu were the obvious crowd favorites in Newfoundland, but the final came down to a battle between two Scottish teams, with Team Patterson defeating Team Mowat in the final. Ross Patterson joined from the hack to discuss his team's first slam win, which has come in their first season together as a team. Ross, it's been a few days now since your big win at the Boost National in Newfoundland. Has it sunk in yet that you and the boys have won your first Grand Slam title? Yeah, um, just a just a huge result for us, you know, as a team and and individually as well. You know, we've uh, we've all been curlers that have been working hard for a lot of years now, so it's nice uh, to see that starting to come to fruition and. To have that as a year one team makes it, I suppose, a little bit even more special. You know, we've got guys playing in new positions and we're still trying to figure out maybe how to get the best out of each other. But we're certainly we're certainly finding a little bit of consistency now, which has um, got us a couple of good results. Tell me a little bit about that final at the Boost National. Both teams looked a bit tentative at times, but you also made some key shots along the way. Is that the type of game you were expecting considering you were playing a team you know so well? Yeah, Again, the the final was probably one that had a lot, a couple more missed shots than each team would have liked. We we had a game plan before the start, 
and you know it, our, our, our game plan worked for us. You know, we we said that the we wanted to come out of that game with the extra ends, sorry, the hammer and the extra ends, and, and we managed to get it. And after that, it was really just about the guys leaving me a shot. And again, thankfully, it came. Yeah, and it's not going to work for that, but it was good. Um, good to see the what we what we said to put into practice. Are you surprised that you and the team have been able to perform so well in your first season together? Typically, when new teams are formed, the first season tends to be about developing chemistry, working on communication, getting to know each other's tendencies, etc. In your case, it certainly looks like you've been able to speed up that process a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I'd probably be lying if I said I wasn't a little bit surprised. But again, um, I've got a team who are, are working really hard. You know, we, we put in a lot of hours. We've got a great national curling academy back in Stirling that we're we're using a lot. We've got access to great coaches. We've got our own um, team coach in Tetley who's joined us, and he's been a great addition as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's satisfying more than anything else because we all know the work that we're putting in, and you know, to see the results following that is it, it feels great. But at the same time, you know, it feels like we're getting rewards for for the effort that we're putting in. And um, the, the the start of the season, we we, we, we've always played fairly well, but we, we struggled a lot bit for consistency, and I think that that was a sign of the, the fact that we were a new team and we were playing in new positions, and like you say, we're finding out dynamics, we're finding out tactics, communication, all the small things which separate a good team from you know a very good team which can compete at the slams, and I think that the last trip we had to Canada, we had three weeks, um, and, and, and in that trip, we started to find what was really working for us, and it was just great that we managed to take that route to Newfoundland and um, get, a, get a win on the board, which is our first win as a team, and to get it as a, as a grand slam is just, uh, just amazing. Let's be perfectly honest, Ross. Team Mode has gotten most of the media attention when it comes to Scottish men's teams over the past 12 months or so, with their bronze medal at Worlds and their European title last month. Did the win have any added significance to your team because it came in an all-Scottish slam final, which will no doubt have generated additional media coverage back home and will also show curling fans that there continues to be good depth in the Scottish men's curling program? I think Team Mode have, have uh, deserved the, the credit that they've had over the recent times. You know, they've, they've had great success recently and you know we, 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 we accept that they've, they've been in the spotlight for that, but... Um, we also we also had our, our first game against them in the, the round robin at the Grand Slam and we came out in the wrong end of that one. We it wasn't it wasn't a great game for us but those guys played played very well. So when we met them again in the final it was it was really to try and prove a point and to let those guys know that, you know, when it comes to the, the Scottish that the championships in February that, that we're gonna have a say in that as well. So it was it was important for us to get that result and to have it in a final as well. Um, was, was probably a, an extra bit special too. A bit earlier, you mentioned your coach, Ian Tetley, who has quite the curling pedigree of his own, having won three world championships while playing with some legendary Canadian curlers such as Ed Wernick and Al Hackner, among others. What has Tetley brought to the team this season, especially since it's your first season together as a team? Um, Tet's brought a lot to our team. He's, 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 he's worked with British curling before with with Team Murdoch, so so Mike has had previous experience of, of working with him and he had a good relationship there. So um, when we were looking for a coach, he was recommended and you know we've, we've certainly um, enjoyed having him being part of the team. Uh, you know He's got so much experience at the big events that he can help us cope with that, but at the same time, um, he's really helped us with, with tactics and you know how we approach the game and 
um, you know, the importance of, of shot placement and things like that. So, um, we again, we've, we've, we've accelerated in a short period of time, but it's with the realisation that there's still a lot of work to be done to to, to get to where we, we want to be, where our end goals are. So, um, it's, it's going to be something that's going to be an ongoing process, but again, you know, we're delighted to have them on board and we're looking forward to, to seeing where the team can go. And finally, Ross, during Sportsnet's coverage on Sunday, Mike Harris mentioned that word out of Scotland is that funding for men's curling might be limited to two teams next season at the elite level. I can appreciate that future funding is not on your mind during games and or practices, but I'm wondering if the knowledge that funding might be clawed back next season has provided your team with additional motivation to ensure that you earn enough good results this season to ensure that you are part of the group of athletes from Scotland that will be funded next season. Yeah, I mean, it's maybe something that's not necessarily on our minds you know we've we've set our we set our targets out as a team we've had you know at the start of the season we sit down and we write down together what, what we plan to do and the focus really has to be on the results and the performances and the processes that are involved to get those results so you know the funding thing is something which we're not massively thinking about we just we're just trying to try our very best to, to do what we set out as a team at the start of the season and if we, if we achieve what we want to do then you know it's something hopefully we don't have to worry about too much the women's event at the boost national came down to a matchup between team holman and team anderson with team holman earning their ninth career grand slam title lisa weagle of team holman joined from the hack to discuss her team's performance at the boost national and also to discuss team holman's exceptional start to the current season Elisa, your team obviously played well at the Boost National and Conception-based South Newfoundland last weekend, losing only one game all week on the way to the title. It must have felt nice to play that well, especially since it came on the heels of the Canada Cup, which can be a bit of a grind from a scheduling perspective. Yeah, the Canada Cup is definitely a grind with two games a day and ten in games. So, um, you know, flying straight to Newfoundland and then getting into a second event in a row. Um, you know, sometimes your technical isn't quite where you want it to be, but... Uh, we just really kind of plugged along and tried to play our best out there and uh, obviously super happy with our results at the Boost National. I'm just curious, both teams seem to be having a little bit of trouble early in the final on Sunday with the ice conditions. Uh, had they changed much from what they were early in the week? And I ask that question because I often hear players talk about how the ice conditions change a little bit when there's only one game out on the ice as opposed to four or five, depending on what venue you're in. Yeah, like you said, we always expect that the ice is going to be a little bit different um, when you're the only team out there, but uh, we had found it pretty consistent throughout the week, at least the start. It was usually the same, it was timing the same in practice, and we found it would slow down a little bit uh, as the game went on, so we were expecting that, and we just went out there and tried to take the ice for what it was and keep judging it and reevaluating it, and we had uh, selected a set of rocks that um, we had really liked throughout the week. So, yeah, maybe it, it changed a little bit, but uh, I think that's just, you know, part of curling is just having to pick up on the ice conditions. How long does it typically take you and Joanne to pick up on any changes in the ice from, let's say, a previous draw or a previous day? Yeah, we're always um, kind of getting hog-to-hog times on the other team's rocks, and right from practice we're trying to figure out how the ice is running, what paths have been broken down, what a fresh path might feel like. So that's kind of a constant um, point of communication for the whole team. And then if we see something a little bit out of the ordinary, for example, in the fifth end, one of my rocks came up really short. And so to have the trust among the team for me to say, you know what, I think I, I felt like I threw the same weight I've been throwing. So then we can all buy in that maybe it's slowing down a little bit and uh, make those adjustments. 
based on that. So it's a lot of communication, a lot of trust in each other, and just, you know, having that experience of, of seeing other teams rocks and trying to pick up on that. For those of us watching, it became clear early in the game that Kerry Anderson was having a little bit of difficulty reading the ice during the final at the Boost National. Now, most elite players tell me that they usually stick to their game plan and worry about their own rocks and don't pay much attention to any difficulties the opponent might be having. But I'm wondering if your team discusses an opponent's apparent struggles in your huddles during TV timeouts between ends, perhaps tweaking your strategy to exploit whatever problem the opponent might be having that day. Yeah, we're definitely aware of that, but it's kind of like you said, we're really focused on ourselves and our own rock placement. The whole week it had kind of been tough ice to make precision shots on, so certainly those are the kind of shots that you want to leave your opposition, but uh, you know, Carrie was really close on a lot of her shots, and um, you know, one shot could turn the game around, so you know, even though we were in the lead, it was only by a couple points, so we were just trying to limit her scoring opportunities to one or two. Um, not give her a chance for a big end. Your team has gotten out of the gate real fast this season, winning the inaugural Curling World Cup event along with two slams and another slam final. Can you point to perhaps one or two factors that have allowed Team Holman to get off to such a strong start this season? Yeah, I think having the first event for us in China and knowing that, um, you know, there is a big purse on the line and then potentially the um, final World Cup event was a really big motivator for us. So we started practicing in the summer and getting ready for that event. And we really spent a lot of time focused on our, our technical throws and kind of going back to basics and um, correcting any kind of tendencies that maybe had crept in over the last couple of years. So that we started with that, and I think that has really helped us um, throughout the season. Um, we're really proud of the start we've had. Our goal is always to qualify in every event we're in, and um, I think we actually made the semis at least in every event and had a few really big wins. So uh, it's nice to head into you know the next part of our season where we're going to be switching gears a little bit and uh, focused on provincials um, to know that we've had some you know, really great games and some big wins under our belt. Much has been made this season about your team working on elevating your finesse game to complement your well-earned reputation as one of the best hitting teams the women's game has probably ever seen. Joanne referred to it briefly in an interview she did with Christina Ferlan for the From the Hack Canada Cup preview, mentioning that it's part of growing your game as a team. Are you simply trying to round out your game a little, or do you anticipate that with the five-rock rule now being in effect across the board, that softer weight shots are going to become more important than ever? I actually, I think it's both. Um, I think for any team, you want to have as many tools as possible in your toolkit. And I know that Team Holman is really known for the big weight hit ability. And so that's a tool that we're always trying to sharpen and refine. But then that draw game and the soft shots is just another part of our game. And I don't think we would have had the success we've had over the years without being able to draw. So, um, you know, it's kind of funny that there's, I guess, some attention on this. But uh I think a big part of it is just the change in the game with the five-rock rule. Um, there's some situations where Joanne would be hitting on her first shot uh, in the past, and now she's got to throw a draw. So it's just that much more important for every player to be really comfortable with draw weight, for the sweepers to be able to sweep anything into position and, uh, you know, be able to use that. You know, we look at the game we just played in the final, and, in the third end, it looked like Anderson might get a big end, and Rachel was able to make a perfect freeze to get us out of it. So I think with more rocks in play with the five-rock rule, those are just some of the shots that are, have to be in team's repertoire to have success. 
And finally, Lisa, members of your team kept talking about following the process during the last cycle as you had quote-unquote reverse-engineered a path you felt would and ultimately did lead you to the trials and the Olympics. Now that you know what that path looks like and what it takes to reach that objective of getting to the Olympics, has it allowed you and your team to take those lessons learned and change your process for this cycle in a way that the team feels will benefit everyone both on and off the ice? Certainly last Olympic cycle, we um, took the lessons we learned from the previous one and spent a lot of time planning and, and figuring out what it was that we needed to do to be able to win the trials. And winning that is definitely one of the highlights of my curling career, something I will always look back on really fondly and, and I'm very proud of. So we know kind of what it takes to win the trials. And then, obviously, we didn't have the success we wanted at the Olympics. So. That's a goal for our team is, you know, throughout this next four-year cycle to be able to win the trials again and get back to the Olympics and, and win that gold medal for Canada that we had set out to do. But I think at the end of last season, kind of looking at, you know, this next Olympic cycle as a whole seemed a little bit overwhelming. So we really broke it down and we're, we're just kind of taking this year for what it is. And I think that's part of why we've had so much success early this season is we're really invested in every single game we're playing, every event we're playing. We're just kind of taking it for what it is and, and not really looking at that bigger Olympic picture right now. So I think having that perspective is allowing us to have a little bit more fun, uh, to be a little bit more in the moment and, uh, you know, just really enjoy what it is. So like I said, you know, we're, our, our focus is shifting now to provincials and trying to get back to the Scotties and the World Championships, and that, that becomes kind of the focus for the next part of the season um, and certainly a few other events. But, um, you know, that Olympic goal is there, but it's not at the forefront right now. I think in our sport we, um, you know, it's amazing that curling is in the Olympics, and I think a lot of us kind of fixate on that as a whole. But there's so many amazing events and opportunities that we have along the way. Like we just won our ninth Grand Slam. And to me, that's a huge accomplishment that we're really proud of. And, you know, we want to get back to another Scotties and try and win our fourth Scotties. So there's so many events along the way um, that lead to the Olympics that, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to be a bit more in the moment and enjoy them for what they are. If you're looking to buy some new curling equipment, look no further than Hardline Curling. For those who play with the ice pad, they know it's the best curling brush. Whether it's the U.S. Olympic gold medalist Team Schuster or women's Olympic gold medalist Sweden's Team Hasselberg and their countrymen Team Adine, or how about the top Canadian teams Team Gushu, Kevin Cooey, Brad Jacobs, Team Carruthers, Kerry Anderson and Chelsea Carey. The list is endless. And Hardline is not just curling brooms. They offer a full range of curling equipment to get you playing your best, including shoes, apparel and the Pro Slide Delivery Aid designed by Reed Carruthers. Visit their website at www.hardlinecurling.com and see why the top teams in the world choose Hardline for their equipment needs. Before we move on to our final guest of the weekend of the year, I wanted to remind you that From the Hack is part of the Curling Podcast Network, along with the Two Girls in the Game podcast and the Curling Legends podcast. If you haven't subscribed to those two podcasts yet, you should really check them out. I also want to take a second to thank each and every one of the guests that took time out of their schedule over the past year to join me on the From the Hack podcast. And I especially want to thank every one of you for listening to the podcast. You may be surprised by this, but curling podcasts are not a road to riches. We do it because we love the sport. We do it because we enjoy interacting with some of the top curlers, coaches, and administrators from around the curling world. And we do it because we want to share our passion for the sport with you, our listeners. So thank you once again for joining me on this journey. 
Our final guest of 2018 is Devin Haru of CBC Sports, who has written more stories and more tweets about curling in the past year than anyone else I know. His love of the game and his ability to get to the heart of every story he does has made him a favorite of curlers and curling fans around Canada and in other parts of the world. I'm not sure this interview will provide any drama or whether or not the audience will think it is lit, but as always, I enjoyed our discussion and Devin provides his insider's insights to the various topics we touch on. Devin, I want to start with a team that has arguably had the best start of any Canadian curling team this season, and that's Team Holman. More than anything, I've been impressed with that team's resiliency this year. Here's a team that spent four years focused on qualifying for the 2018 Olympics, accomplished that goal with an emotional win in front of a home crowd in Ottawa at the Olympic Trials, and then in Pyeongchang, where they were the heavy favourites, they, unfortunately for them, had a really bad week at a really bad time. That kind of disappointment could have destroyed some teams, but all they've done since then is finish last season with a win at the Champions Cup, followed that up by a win at the first ever Curling World Cup in China early this season, and then two more slam victories this season so far, and they've now surpassed Team Hasselberg for number one in the world rankings in a season where Team Hasselberg has been really good themselves. How impressed are you with Team Homan and about how they've rebounded from that bad week in Korea last February? I think it's remarkable, Frank. I think what they've been able to do uh, at the beginning of this year is uh, is nothing short of remarkable. I mean, yeah, it was a bad week, and it was it was so difficult to have to cover this story to be a reporter that was so close to to both of those Canadian teams in Pyeongchang, and and to have sort of this horrible history unfolding in front of my eyes and. Um, it was devastating. It was devastating to have to cover, and then I can't even imagine what it would be like for, for those four ladies, um, like you said, setting it up so well. Their dream coming true, the, the, the expectations of this curling crazed nation, and then to have what happened um, unfold there was just, like I said, devastating. But, but the way they've rallied, and they're on a mission right now, and let me tell you, uh, Rachel Holman and I had one of the best conversations I've ever had with Rachel after her win in Newfoundland and Labrador last week. There was a level of reflection, authenticity, and just sort of self-awareness from Rachel Holman that I was so impressed by because she addressed, without my prompting, the, the disappointment of the Olympics, that it was important to them to get away from the game this off season, because you can imagine everywhere they went, every conversation was dominated by the question, what happened? And so they get away from it all. They come back. They get this new coach in Marcel Rock. She talked, you know, had rave reviews about what he's done with the team. And I think, you know, here's the thing in sport and life. When, you, when everything sort of crumbles apart and you're sort of left looking at yourself and going, who am I going to be in this moment moving forward, you, you really have to get to some really gross, vulnerable places. And I think the four of them have done it together. The level of resilience and, and rejuvenation that they've shown in the first half of this curling season has been such a pleasure to watch. To me, they seem like a more relaxed team on the ice. And to me, they look like they have something to prove. That's probably a little bit unfair because they took a lot of heat they probably didn't deserve. But, man, they are on a roll right now, and I wouldn't want to be somebody that has to play them in the near future. And Rachel Holman also added, Frank, that she knows losses will be in their future. 
they're meeting that head on. And I think they're going to be a better team because of that, that they're removing the fear of defeat. And when that happens, I think curling teams can be invincible. The other team that has received a lot of attention early this season is Team Jacobs. They added Adam Kingsbury as their coach to help them with their mental approach both during and in between events earlier this season. Then they started the season with decent results, but then they laid an absolute egg at the Masters, going winless in that event. They rebounded quickly by winning the Tour Challenge a couple of weeks later. Then came the now infamous Red Deer incident involving Ryan Fry. Then Mark Kennedy steps in under difficult circumstances and they win the Canada Cup with him at third. Do you think this current streak of really good play is sustainable for this team to perform at that level, especially in a year transition for them, working with a new coach and tweaking their approach to the sport while also dealing with some of these off-ice issues that they've had to deal with? Well, I think I think they've had a disastrous last couple of years. Uh, Brad Jacobs told me that in, in Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, and, you know, I think much like the Holman team, you kind of get to these breaking points, these points of no return, and you have to decide as a team and individually what you're going to do moving forward. They get Kingsbury. Uh, they all had rave reviews for Adam Kingsbury. They think that he's done magic for their team. And we know, and I won't get into it, but we know there's a debate about whether or not somebody of Kingsbury's background uh, can help a curling team, you know, not your your prototypical curling coach. And there's a, a divide within all that. I put that question to Jacob. He, he smirked at me and he says, well, it's working for us, isn't it? Then you have the distraction, and of course I broke this story with Ryan Fry, and and it shook the team. E.J. Harnden really opened up to me in, in the most vulnerable of ways uh, in, in Conception Bay South and, and just told me that, you know, he'd be lying if he said it wasn't difficult for them. And, and you know, the, it's been a galvanizing situation. Of course they, they had uh, the two players step in in these last bond fields, but they want – Ryan Fry back for the Grand Slam in North Battleford, and they're going to be meeting as a team over the holidays. But I think it's been these guys, these guys uh, wear their emotions on their sleeve. And I think what Kingsbury has done is he's finally gotten these hyper-competitive guys to finally sort of take a breath, be intentional about the way they approach the game, be present in every moment on the ice, and remind themselves of every shot before every shot throughout a curling game. And isn't it a wonderful thing to see people who can be so caught up and swept away in the curling game now have this level of awareness and presence that they couldn't seem to reach. And it's a collective presence now. You can see it on the ice. They're reminding each other. I can't remember a time that I've seen Brad Jacobs and those guys more relaxed even the tone of their voice, their body language, the way I talked to Brad Jacobs in an interview after the game, his tone, his demeanor, it was almost to me like he felt like he had something to prove in, in those post-game interviews. That's all gone. Um, I don't want to delve into, you know, the psychology around ego and all of these things, but Kingsbury has these guys so dialed in. They're such a tight team right now. The Fry situation has been difficult. They're in constant contact with him. I know Ryan is working very hard on his personal growth behind the scenes. And I fully expect these guys to come back as a team, as a cohesive unit, at 
the uh, at the Grand Slam in North Battleford, and I think they're going to be a different team. I really do. They had to have some really gross things have to happen, a breaking point, but they're coming together with the guidance of Adam's, Adam Kingsbury. And I always like to believe, and I think a lot of people do, that things happen for a reason. Could you have had a more pressure-packed and stressful situation than the Fry situation, but then have the more steady guiding hand of Kingsbury to help a team through it. So these guys will come back more focused than ever. I think they're going to be just fine, and I think this is a pivotal moment for them, one that at the time was painful and and difficult, but one I think this team is going to look back on as a real blessing. There was a bunch of experienced curling observers that frowned late last season when word got out that Kerry Anderson had put together a team that included three players, Val Sweeting, Shannon Burchard, and Brianne Maillard, who skipped their own teams last season. At best, people thought it would take the team at least a year to gel as players got used to new positions. What most people did not know was that this team was all in from the outset. They worked on team building and accepting roles during the offseason. The front end increased their training so that they would be effective sweepers. They consulted with people like Mark Kennedy, who shared his best practices that he's learned from playing on quote-unquote super teams of his own. And they built their schedule in a way that would allow them to get a bunch of reps at early season events where they would be among the favorites. You've been on site at different slams during the season. Is it fair to say that Team Anderson have now gotten the full attention and respect of the elite curling community? Well, of course they have gotten the attention, and deservedly so, because they've won a bunch of events early in the season, and they've made it into finals, and they're here. Look, I wasn't somebody who was who was frowning upon it in the beginning. I think it was lazy and somewhat sensational to put headlines out about this all skip team and this could be a disaster and too many chefs in the kitchen and on and on and all the sort of, I don't know, distracting and annoying sort of discourse that revolved around this team because at the end of the day, these are four skips with a competitive edge who all want to reach curling greatness in this country. And so watching them on the ice, they are so focused, they are so dedicated to their craft they are sweeping in the most incredible fashion. I mean, the strength these, these ladies are, are showing on the ice right now is just awesome to watch because we know this is a grind. We know these events are a grind. We know how much conditioning and stamina in the sport now late in the ends is a factor. Um, one of the conversations, if there was a knock against this incredible team, and who knows, maybe we were watching the Scotty's final preview when we saw Holman and Einerson play in this last Grand, Grand Slam final, which, by the way, was, was a bad day at the office for Kerry Einerson. And, and it was so nice to see her, Frank, yeah, have, a, have a joking sort of attitude at one point in the final. I think she made a beautiful draw, and she laughed with, with uh, Shannon and, and Brianne and said, I finally made a shot, you know, so she could have some awareness. But the one knock I would hear is that maybe because they are all skips, it's hard for Carrie to really grab the reins at pivotal moments, if, if you know what I mean. Like when there are these pressure-packed situations and you do have four skips who may have four different ideas of, of what will happen, that might be the one time, because I think they've, they've communicated really well to, to let it be Carrie's team throughout the end, but there might be those really key pivotal shots where it might be in between one or the other that 
that some indecision might creep in. And we have such great curling commentators and, and past curlers who have told us that when a skip has two shots in their mind going into the hack, that's the most prone place to miss a shot, right? And so that would be the one thing I think this team might have to work on is taking the reins in those pivotal pressure moments and saying, no, this is a shot I want to be throwing and this is what I'm throwing. Because it's usually in those pivotal moments that, that curling today where games are, are won and lost. So I just have all the respect for this team. They proved a lot of people wrong. Like I said, I think they were up against it early when a lot of people wanted to doubt them and discount the fact that four skips could get together and do what they've done, but they've been so committed. They, they haven't been distracted by any of that, and I think they're going to be a really fun team to watch for a number of years, and uh, who knows what could happen at the Olympic trials. Now, I want to follow up with you on a couple of off-ice stories that you wrote or covered over the past few months. Let's start with the interview you did with Mark Kennedy, where he shared his belief that Canada might be exporting too much curling expertise to other countries. Comments that led to Mark getting blowback from the larger curling community. Do you get a sense that some of the elite athletes in Canada, the elite curlers, may be quietly frustrated that so much expertise is, in fact, being shared with other countries, or is there a sense among the elite Canadian curling community that for the sport to keep growing and to ultimately become more profitable for players, it's important to help the growth of the sport in other countries? Well, let me be clear about one thing. Mark Kennedy has the best of intentions when it comes to the game of curling, curling in Canada, and growing the game internationally. The piece took off. It led to an hour-long phoning show across Alberta, and Mark Kennedy took people's calls, and he did face backlash. Because I don't know if people in his, in his position would, would have the guts to say what he said. Look, it was also somewhat in response to what unfolded in Pyeongchang, but there are, are, there are a lot of great curlers who are going around the world and, 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 and helping other teams. Look, I did a follow-up article from, from Newfoundland and Labrador with some of the people that maybe felt it was a little misguided, including the story of J.D. Lind, right, uh, an Alberta curler who had aspirations of making it to the briar, who couldn't get past Kevin Martin and, and Kevin Cooey, and so he went to coaching and then, you know, was, was maybe a step below what would have been considered A-level coaches in this country, Nobody called from Curling Canada. They should, Curling Canada certainly called Mark Kennedy, right? So J.D. Lane goes and, and helps out in Japan and, and, you know, has helped them have great success. I think there's a happy medium to be found within this argument, and it's been heated. Let me tell you, behind the scenes, I've heard from both sides of this. People who off the record say, yeah, we agree with Mark. We're sick and tired. Of, of these Canadians helping other people get good because guess what? The rest of the world is already there. They have caught up. So let's keep it for ourselves and let's work on, on honing our craft. And then there are other people who have strong feelings and say, are you crazy? Let's keep uh, continuing to grow the sport and, and sharing our expertise. And so, look, the debate is going to rage on. But like I said, Mark Kennedy's intentions were pure they weren't a malice or weren't, you know, anger-driven or anything like that. But I think it is a healthy conversation to have 
about where the sport is heading because all of these pieces I'm writing, Frank, I'm really trying to get at the heart of the culture of curling and the rapidly shifting landscape that literally seems to be moving under our feet day after day, whether it comes to, to the growth of the sport in regions of the world or the rule changes or the time clock situations or all, five rock rule. All of these things are changing the game mostly for, for a good, a, a good way. But, um, Canada's role in it has been impactful, maybe to the detriment of hauling in more medals, but the game has certainly evolved thanks to Canada. Devin, you obviously cover many different sports for the CBC, and one issue that has been at the forefront throughout 2018 has been the fact that many courageous athletes, most of them women, have come forward to share their stories of abuse at the hands of authority figures, be it coaches or sports administrators. It's found its way into the curling community recently with Korea's Olympic silver medal winning Garlic Girls with Eun Kim and her team accusing a senior official at the Korean Curling Federation of verbal abuse and of violating their human rights. I know that you've been doing a lot of behind-the-scenes work and research on this larger topic, and I'm wondering if it's fair to say that the sporting community in Canada is only just now seeing the tip of the iceberg when it comes to this larger abuse issue, which is being tied in in many circles with the Me Too movement that has evolved in the United States and across the world over the past year or so. Well, the conversations uh, are happening. This is real in sport. Some have gone as far as saying this is a Me Too movement in sport that's, that's unfolding in front of our eyes, and a lot of these difficult conversations are happening. I mean, whether it's the Garlic Girls and, and their allegations of abuse, uh, hazing and, and Daniel Carcillo coming forward with some of his stories, and then some of the work I've been doing behind the scenes for the last six months looking at sexual assault in amateur and high-performance sport in this country, it's here, and no sport is immune. And so when we have these allegations and when we have people come forward and, and, and share these things and report these things, it's an important step not only in moving sport forward and creating safe spaces for these athletes, but more importantly for the athletes themselves, because at the heart of all of this, Frank, is the powerful and complicated dynamic relationship between coach and athlete or official and athlete. Whoever holds the keys to the future of athletes is in a privileged, powerful position. And when that happens and when you know that your athletic dreams are literally at the hands of one or two people, that's when bad things happen. And that's what sport is trying to move away from, and that's what the Sport Minister of Canada is trying to do, is to have reporting balances and, and checks and balances and infrastructure to ensure that these things don't happen. It happens at a very high level, like the Olympic level, but it also happens, and our investigation is showing this, at grassroots level. And so there is so much work to be done. But to think that any of these people, especially in the place of sport, when you have this privileged and complex relationship existing, to think that it doesn't happen here is just ludicrous. We had the pivotal case of Sheldon Kennedy, Theo Fleury, Graham James 20 years ago. We're looking at what's happened since. And this just reaffirms the, the, the Garlic Girls story, 
that it's still happening today in sport and still a lot more work needs to be done. And finally, Devin, it seems like each year people like you and I that get to follow quite a bit of curling are lucky enough to stumble on a few very good, if unexpected, stories. For me this year, one of the better stories in the sport of curling came in the form of a young curler who has yet to play in very many bond spiels, but he has gotten a lot of attention from the curling community this season, not so much for her curling exploits, but for an impressive YouTube curling show she hosted and developed starting this season. I remember sending you a DM after coming across the first episode of Christina Furland's Lazy Handle Show, an episode that you had also come across, and before she probably knew what hit her, the two of you were hanging out at the Canadian Sports Awards in Ottawa, she was interviewing Joanne Courtney and Ben Hebert for my From the Hack Canada Cup preview, and then the World Curling Federation brought her to the second leg of the Curling World Cup in Omaha, Nebraska, where she got to interview Olympic champions Anna Hasselberg and John Schuster, among others. Maybe it's because she was living in an experience that I would have liked to experience when I was her age, but her story, her YouTube show, and the way she was welcomed by the curling community, certainly, at least from my perspective, was one of the feel-good curling stories of the year. Remember, it's when, Katrina. <laughs> it's, it's really been something to watch her um, mature as a commentator, mature as a person, get these exquisite opportunities to put herself out there. Of course, her and I got to spend a, a bunch of time together in Ottawa at the Canadian Sport Awards and, and have some fun. And, and she knows more about the game and more about the players than I do. I'm okay with admitting that. And then, of course, this latest trip to Omaha and meeting all her favorites there, and she's starry-eyed. It is what uh, her story, what's unfolded, the way uh, we have welcomed her the way the curlers and the curling world has welcomed her is so quintessentially Canadian and so quintessentially curling, right? Somebody that, that starts off with its dream of having this lazy handle show and it just takes off and, you know, to have Olympic champions, world champions, Briar, Scotties, all these people just go and be cool and spend time with her and give her autographed jerseys and all these things and take time. I mean, this is this is going to be things she remembers for the rest of her life. And and for me it was like a highlight of so many highlights of this year and I and this is a cheap plug for me, but next year on C B C Sports you're gonna see my top ten curling moments of the year and this has really been a remarkable year for the sport. I think it just continues to grow, and I think Katrina Furlan can be she, – she didn't make the top 10 list because I could have done a top 20 list, but she's part of that. And, and in a lot of ways, Frank, it reminded me of myself at the 2004 Briar for, at my first CBC internship. And going and being around Jeff Stoughton and Russ Howard and Mark Dacey and, and, and Randy Furby and, and remembering what that meant to me. Uh, and, and, you know, you, you lose appreciation when it's, when it's you in that position because you really don't know how much it meant. But, boy, I can remember being starry-eyed around those guys and holding the microphone and remembering how badly I wanted to continue to do this. And I think for me, more than anything, it reinvigorated and reminded me about the work I get to do, the very cool work I get to go do when I'm working the long hours and alone in a curling rink in the middle of nowhere sometimes, that 
Katrina reminded me about what this is all about and how lucky I am to do my job and to be able to share it with Canadians. And I hope that she gets the same path as I've been afforded because it's been such a blessing for me. And um, she's really darn good at it, and I can't wait to see where she ends up. And that does it for the From the Hack podcast for 2018. A big thank you to each of our guests and to all of you for listening. I'm Frank Rock, and this is From the Hack.